like to read for you the story this morning from 2 Kings chapter 5. It's a great story. I'm going to read 14 verses of it to you. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and you'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him to say, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you'll be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Verse 1 again, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. Here's one of the most important men on the planet. Aram was a superpower in those days, and Naaman was Aram's super soldier. Without question, he was fabulously rich. He was also highly respected. People bowed when he walked by. They whispered excitedly when he entered a room. He had it all. And that included something he didn't want. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, before we go further, you need to understand that the biblical words translated leprosy are used very broadly. When we use the word leprosy today, we're referring to Hansen's disease, which until recent decades was a death sentence. Hansen's ate away at a person's skin until he or she had none. It's one of the most feared diseases in the world. People with Hansen's were doomed to disfigurement and death. But the biblical words translated as leprosy in both the Old Testament and the New Testament include a variety of skin diseases, not just Hansen's. In ancient times, skin diseases were 
deeply feared. So think Ebola, and you'll have the idea. Because they were often contagious and could sweep through an entire village or a camp. And so people with skin diseases were routinely isolated from the rest of the community until the disease had cleared up. For some people, it never cleared up. And isolation was forever. When the Bible says that Naaman had leprosy, we're to understand that his future was bleak. His usefulness to king and country was in doubt. If the disease spread, he was condemned to a lonely and isolated, unhappy future. You know, everyone has pain in his or her life. That's just part of what it means to live in a fallen world. You may be a rich businessman or a penniless wanderer, but either way, you'll have pain in your life. And it's the nature of things for us to feel like we can't take any more of it, like we've reached our pain ceiling. That's why the guy that you think has everything probably is hurting, or at least he feels he is, just as much as you are. And there's probably somebody out there who would trade his life for your life at a moment's notice. Naaman was rich, famous, and powerful. And yet, as Bishop Hall put it, the basest slave in Syria wouldn't change skins with him. He had his pain. And it was almost more than he could bear. Now, we read earlier that Naaman was a general in Aram. Aram was situated in modern-day Syria and was a brutal regime even then. In fact, throughout history, Syria has been one of the most ruthless nations on earth, millennia after millennia. What's happening there now is part and parcel of Syria's millennia-old history. Prior to the events in our story, Aram and Israel had been in conflict. Israel borders Aram on its northeast corner. There had been border skirmishes for years, and in those skirmishes, captives were often taken to be sold as slaves back in Aram. One such captive was a young girl who was sold as a slave to the household of Naaman. So here was a Jewish girl living alone, I mean, apart from family, in a society that she didn't know and that didn't know her Lord or have any regard for him. This girl could have been bitter over her misfortune, but she wasn't. She was a caring person who grew to love the people who employed her. When she saw the worry on her boss's face and heard him and his wife agonizing over what their future might hold, her heart went out to them. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, if you were living in a foreign culture where people didn't understand you, if you were oppressed in that culture and forced to do menial work for little return, would you show compassion on the people there? She did. Text says that Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. Now, either Naaman was so desperate that he was willing to try anything, or he and his wife had developed a real respect for this girl. I suspect it was the latter, or maybe both. But they knew this young woman. They knew how sensible she was and how much she cared. So when she said that there was a prophet of Israel's God who could cure leprosy, they believed her. Now, I think there's a lesson that we can learn here. The effectiveness of your witness at work 
will depend on the effectiveness of your work at work. The followers of Jesus ought to be the very best workers in every factory and office. So Naaman went to his boss on the word of a slave girl in his employ. I think that's really something. A young woman, hardly more than a girl, speaks a word, and it moves kings and mighty men. But we've seen that before. A person doesn't have to be great to be influential. He or she doesn't have to have all the answers. God can use any of us if we're connected to him and willing to be used. And he'll use us even if we're not willing to be used. But that's not much advantage to us. Naaman's boss, the king of Aram, said, By all means, go. I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. Sealed, I'm sure. Naaman probably never saw what was in the letter. I think that's significant. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver. That's about 750 pounds. 6,000 shekels of gold. That's about 150 pounds. And 10 sets of clothing. In those days, clothing was considered as much an asset as cash or, or precious metals. Naaman withdrew a large chunk of money from his bank account. The silver, the gold, and clothing, they were his health insurance card. See, they didn't have the Affordable Care Act back then. Or maybe they did, and he still needed to do that. Don't forget that there have been border clashes going on between Israel and Aram for some time. And before the border clashes, they were at war with each other. And after the events recorded in our text, they'll be at war again. There was constant suspicion Hatred and fear between them, but especially on the part of Israel, which was much the smaller nation. So what were they to think when the highest-ranking officer in Aram's military came to them for a cure? The text tells us what they thought. This is verse 6. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, and remember, he probably hadn't read this letter. It was sealed with the king's stamp on it. With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy, so that you may cure him. Verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me? The king of Israel was certain that this was a stunt. It was a ploy on the part of Aram's king to find cause for invading Israel. He was beside himself, and he tore his clothes, which in that culture was an expression of overwhelming emotion, of anger or grief or fear. Aram was much the larger nation and had a more formidable army. Israel's king and probably his advisors, the people he's talking to, considered the letter and the general's presence in his request as a prelude to invasion. And I suspect that that's what the king of Aram had in the back of his mind all along. But God was thinking of something else. Verse 8, when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Now, they didn't have GPS in those days. So how did this foreigner find Elisha's house, just one house? Almost certainly the king of Israel sent a high-ranking government delegation to accompany him there. Now, insight and decision had led Naaman to the doorstep of the prophet Elisha. But as we've already seen, trying to implement one decision inevitably leads 
to the need to make other decisions, some of which are anticipated, but some are totally unforeseen. Naaman's insight that he might be healed by the prophet of God, of the Lord, led to a decision. I'm I'm going to go there. I'm going to find a way to go there. But to implement that decision, he had to go to his own king and ask permission to go into Israel. And he had to decide whether or not to spend his money on what might be an uncertain cure. And now as he stands at the door of the prophet, a new decision presents itself, one which he had not foreseen. Elisha sent a messenger to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. And so he went off in a rage. See, Naaman had gone out on a limb by coming to Israel at all. He called in favors. He traveled all these miles. For what? The prophet didn't even bother to come to the door. He hadn't even seen the man. Naaman, who was used to being treated with the utmost respect, was furious. His wounded pride and his unmet expectations almost kept him from implementing his own decision. He says, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot and cure my leprosy. You know, he'd probably never seen anybody cured of leprosy. But he thought he knew what a cure would look like. And it didn't look like washing in a muddy little wadi like the Jordan. As soon as his unrealistic expectations went unmet, just one thing. He was ready to turn his back on his decision and jettison the whole thing. Because it wasn't working out the way he thought it would, he decided it wasn't working out at all. That can happen to us, too. If we're not careful, we might walk away from a decision God is ready to honor with his power and his presence because things aren't happening the way we expected them to happen. But really, how often has God done things the way you expected him to do them? How many times in your life have things worked out just the way you planned? I don't know, but if you're like me, that has not been very often. We aren't smart enough to figure it all out. And if we were that smart, we probably wouldn't be looking to God for help in the first place. And notice how pride nearly derailed Naaman. He was, if I read it correctly, worried about how things would look. Things weren't working out as expected. What if they didn't work out at all? What if he went down to the Jordan and he dipped seven times and he wasn't healed? People would ridicule him and think him a fool. I wonder how often we have been dissuaded from making a decision or from following through on a decision we've already made because we're afraid of what people might think of us. What people think of us has a powerful influence over the decisions we make and how we implement them. Marketers have known that forever. Recently, marketers of sporting apparel have widened their target to include people that they know will never see the inside of a gym, but who want others to think that they have. Outdoor apparel companies are now making hiking boots for people who have no intention of ever hiking. People are buying, this is is true, $90 high-tech running shorts who have no intention of ever jogging. 
And the companies are marketing them specifically. Peer pressure exerts in enormous power over our decisions, even when we're not aware of it. I doubt Naaman ever said to himself, oh, what are people going to think? They're going to make fun of me. But I don't doubt that thought was present somewhere deep inside. And it almost scuttled his intentions. Fortunately for him, he had a support team around him that was willing to tell him the truth willing to tell him he was making a mistake. Do you have somebody like that in your life? You think, why on earth would I want somebody like that in my life? Because you do make mistakes. Because sinful attitudes do cloud your judgment. We all need people who love us and are willing to speak the truth to us. One of the core characteristics of a person in the renewal process is that he or she is open to correction. When there is something in his or her life that is impeding the work of the Holy Spirit in transformation, that person wants to know it. And yet, recent research done by Lifeway Group suggests that of all the benefits associated with being part of a small group, correction is the one that is least valued. We want comfort. We don't want correction. Naaman had people who cared enough about him to correct him. His servants went to him, nervously, I assume, and told him he was making a big mistake. They weren't rude or pushy. In fact, they were very careful not to offend, but still they told him the truth. My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? Now notice the next word. So... So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God told him. Had they not intervened, had they not cared enough about him to tell him he was wrong, he would have gone home sick. And not only sick, he would have gone home bitter and resentful and probably hopeless. One of the great skills of the spiritual life, I wish I could say I had mastered it, is to be able to listen to correction when you're angry. That's what Naaman did. And it meant the difference between health and sickness, usefulness and uselessness, and perhaps between life and death. It also meant the difference between faith and unbelief. Naaman's body wasn't only healed, so was his soul. Listen to what he said to Elisha after he was healed and after Elisha refused to take any money for the cure. This is verse 17. If you will not, that is, if you'll not take any money, if you'll not take any money, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. This is so he can make an altar. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. Clearly, Naaman decided to become a servant of the Lord. That never would have happened had it not been for his friend's willingness to risk his anger, his disapproval, and tell him he was wrong and his willingness to listen. Now, we've been trying to understand how a person changes for the better as a follower of Jesus. We've seen that this process, which I've been calling renewal, involves insight, which comes from God's revelation, decision, and implementation. But I want you to understand that making one decision will not relieve you from the need to make more decisions. In fact, the opposite is true. The implementation part of the process will 
require many decisions on your part. Let's say you've made a decision to live a Christian life. That's good. Now what? Now you'll have to make other decisions. For example, to forgive someone who's hurt you. To read the Bible. To join the church whenever it meets. To serve other people for Christ's sake. You see what's happening? One decision leads to another to another. If you say, but that's not what I want. I want to make a decision and be done with it then you're misreading the situation. Reuel is all about growing in a relationship with God, and relationships are not something you can do once and be done with. That's not how they work. So what can we learn from this? Is there something that we can take home and apply? I think we can make a decision. I would encourage you to consider this. In advance to accept correction. And we can go further and seek relationships where correction can take place. We can even tell certain people, people who love us, that we welcome correction from them. If you see that I'm wrong in my attitudes or my actions, please tell me. I'm asking you to tell me. And when correction comes from people who do not love us, and it will sometimes, we can listen to it without resentment, Judge its validity, heed it if it's valid, and forget it if it's not. Now, before we leave Naaman, I want to point out some important lessons about a relationship with God which are apparent in his life. First, he was in trouble and condemned to a hopeless future. That's true of every man and woman apart from Christ. If you don't have Christ, your situation is grave. Second, he was an enemy of God's people and therefore of God himself. St. Paul says that before we surrendered our lives to Christ, we were God's enemies too. Third, he heard someone, that young woman, who was a slave in his household, talking about the difference God could make in his life. Heard someone talking. That's usually how we first learn. And by the way, had she been lazy or surly or deceitful, Naaman and his wife never would have listened to her. Character counts. Fourth, Naaman was called. Remember what happened? He went to the king. The king said, and Elisha said, bring him to me. Had he not been called, he would have been without hope. If God had not called you, you would be without hope as well. Fifth, Naaman did what so many people try to do. He tried to buy his cure. He tried to buy it with silver and gold. We try to buy our cure. The biblical word is salvation. In fact, the word The verb for salvation is often meant to cure or to heal in the Bible. We try to buy our cure by going to church or reading the Bible or putting money in the offering. The idea that it's possible to buy salvation never goes away entirely. It keeps coming back in different forms. Elisha absolutely refused to accept any money for a cure. He didn't want Naaman to think that he could somehow affect his own cure. And God doesn't want us to think that we can somehow affect our own cure either. Augustus Toplady wrote this in the song, Rock of Ages. 
Because he understood this. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. It wouldn't do it. Thou must save and thou alone. And then he says, so nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Sixth, Naaman thought there must be some complicated, difficult program to go through to be healed. He had his expectations about what it would entail. He couldn't believe it was a simple matter of trusting and obeying. So often people think that God's healing, his salvation is complicated. It's not. It's a matter of trusting God's word. Naaman trusted the word and acted on it. We must do the same. Seventh, once Naaman had stopped trusting himself, his money or whatever else, and started trusting the word, his confidence increased greatly. Before he was healed, he said, this is King James Version, Behold, I thought... But after trusting in the word, he could say, Behold, now I know. You'll never have assurance that you belong to God when you're trying to buy your own way. So let me close with this. I've talked a lot about the renewal process over the past months. I want to be sure you know the renewal power. It's God himself. You can't do it. And you can't connect to him simply by performing religious acts, still less by doing good deeds or being a nice person. You can't connect to God those ways, but you can by believing his word to you, that his son Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried and raised. You can trust his word. Our rebellion has been forgiven, and death itself has been defeated. But you must trust him. If you decide to believe God's word, then you'll have other decisions to make. I don't want to mislead you. You're starting a relationship. You're not closing a deal. Salvation is a life, not a destination. A life you share with God, the Father who loves us, the Son who died for us, and the Spirit who lives in us. Let's pray. God, save us from that wrong thinking. That we can sit down at the table with you and sign a paper, and then everything's done. We've got our ticket. Remind us that this is eternal life, that we might know you. And Jesus Christ, your only Son. Bring us into the relationship that has gone on for eternity. The relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done through your Son, Jesus. The one through whom we pray.